the ability to make the good decisions, that apparatus, the wiring of the brain has been sabotaged. Our brains tend to get locked into acting impulsively using an area of the brain called the amygdala. And there is so much about our modern world that is locking us into making poor decisions, short-sighted decisions based on impulsivity, whatever it is that we know isn't necessarily in our best interest, but we do it because we don't have the ability many times to access the other part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, that allows us to basically let the adult come back into the room and help us with our decision-making that would say, you know, as a matter of fact, you need to eat less refined carbohydrates and guess what, maybe getting out for a 15-minute walk would be a good thing for us to do. That's Dr. David Perlmutter, and this is episode 367 of Wellness Force Radio. Wellness Force Radio, where we discover the physical and emotional intelligence to live life well. You can have the same brain states as someone who's done an hour of meditation every day for 40 years. There's a lot of losses that we go through, so the ability to be able to cope with those losses is very important to build skill in it, because loss will happen. You know, you have to have spiritual courage to really grow spiritually, because if you really want to take guidance from your soul, you have to be ready to realize that many of the things that you're asking for guidance on, your ego has some kind of an addiction to or an investment in. What's up, everyone? It's Josh. You made it to Wellness Force. And today we're talking about two distinct subjects. One of them is the mind. The other one is the emotional body. I mean, we all want to be healthier. We all want to be more productive. But we struggle to follow through on these goals, don't we? We turn novelty like the latest diet or the exercise routine or the productivity hack, like the five best ways to lose weight in like some kind of hope that this time, bunny years, Things will be different. But let's be real. Usually, people with that kind of mindset fall back into the same unhealthy habits again. You know that on this show, we talk about the difference between knowing and doing. And it's that gap between knowledge and action where we know what we want to be doing, but we just can't get ourselves to consistently choose the healthy behavior. It's because this, it's because our decision making is misaligned with our objectives. So we don't reach our desired outcomes. We're talking about this with Dr. David Perlmutter for his return to the show to talk about his book, Brainwash. Now, this book is an epic guidepost when it comes to creating mental clarity. We had him on the podcast and I was totally floored with his understanding of why we actually make poor choices and what we can do from a nutritional, emotional, physical, and even spiritual Uh, Dr. Perlmutter does have a connection to higher power, which obviously is important for us all to lead a long and happy life. Now, we tend to look at failure of either knowledge or willpower, but this is like not true. This is why physicians spend their time educating patients on why they need to make better choices and blaming them when they aren't able to follow through. Let's be real. This doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work, right? Patients don't follow through on treatment plans. Dr. Perlmutter is a neurologist and a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He has a number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain and Brain Maker, also a New York Times bestseller. But he is recognized across the globe, internationally, connected through all nations. For over 35 years, he's been featured on Fox, Larry King, CNN, the Today Show, Oprah, like you name it, he's been there. And he has a cornerstone of an approach to neurological disorders founded in the principles of preventative medicine. That's right. 
prevention. He has brought this public awareness a rich understanding that challenging brain problems, specifically including Alzheimer's disease, other forms of dementia, depression, and ADHD may very well be prevented with lifestyle changes, including gluten-free, low-carbohydrate, and higher-fat diets, coupled with aerobic exercise. By the end of this episode, you're going to have a clear connection on how to create more mental clarity within yourself, within your being. We're going to go deep into the biggest challenge facing physicians in a modern world, what inspired Dr. Perlmutter and his son to write their book, Brainwash. We'll explore this concept of disconnection syndrome. We'll understand why we don't have to be socially distant while in forced isolation. And to be honest, I don't believe in this isolation forced lockdown anyways. If you look at our COVID truth series found at wellnessforce.com forward slash health freedom, share that podcast. There's an incredible amount of trusting information there in real solutions so that you can stand up for your health freedom and let go of this forced lockdown medical tyranny. It's utterly fascinating how we're still playing this game. We'll also talk about how social media blocks our cognitive empathy how social media brands and apps are literally accosting us as they flood our brain with chemicals. We'll talk about rewiring the brain by offsetting inflammation, exploring what works directly against neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, or the growth of new brain cells. This is inflammation. Inflammation is what works against it. And social media causes inflammation, indirectly and directly. We'll talk about how to guard your sleep each night and the simple truth why sleep is so important to our health and why we need seven to eight hours of it each night. And we'll talk about the inner healing work we all get to do, how the emotional intelligence and deep inner work is the missing quotient of our healing and our inner child, how it relates to the adult within us. This is the strategies that's found in Brainwash, as well as many, many other things that are going to help you get more mental clarity. Now, look, I know every week, we explore this construct of what it means to live life well. But this week is really special. We have done an incredible job creating a free guide for you. It's wellnessforce.com forward slash M21. This is six science-backed practices. Everything from breath to hydration, to sleep, to journaling, to mindset. It's all in there. I took 400 episodes and I like squeezed it down into six practices that you can do in 21 minutes. This is found at wellnessforce.com forward slash M21. It is a free guide. It is my gift to you from my heart to yours. I promise you, if you just give yourself these 21 minutes in the morning for free, it's free. You don't have to do anything. You just wake up and follow it. (laughs) That's really, it's actually really simple. It's just the hard part is breathing into the fact that you deserve it. That's the challenge, right? Go to wellnessforce.com forward slash M21, download the guide. Tag us on social at Wellness Force. Write me questions, josh at wellnessforce.com. Let me know what you're struggling with. What's going on for you right now as we're at the tail end, I believe, I hope, I pray, with my hands closed together and my head bowed. My intelligent hope is that this circus, this absolute ridiculous circus of mask wearing and fear will go away as soon as possible. And I'm talking like three months or less, right? In my life, it doesn't exist. I mean, I only wear the mask when I'm forced to, when I go into a store and I literally rip it off as soon as I'm leaving the store. Um, But it gets to me and you're not alone if it bothers you too. Our resources can be found today at wellnessforce.com forward slash 367. Our resources for the health freedom are at wellnessforce.com forward slash health freedom. Do us a favor, do yourself a favor, do your neighbor, do anyone at all who is trying 
their very best to make a solid attempt to live their life well, and they're struggling with mental health or mental clarity, share this episode, share this podcast with them. You have no idea how like five seconds of your generosity can change someone's life. Share this podcast right now as we tune in with the one and only Dr. David Perlmutter. So we have a total treat today, Dr. David Perlmutter coming back on the show to talk about his new book that he wrote with his son, actually, Brainwash, and it couldn't have come at a better time. I think right now people need a brainwash. Thank you for coming on the show. I am always delighted. Good to see you after two and a half years. It's been quite a while. Grain Brain, um, we had almost 100,000 views on our YouTube video that you and I did, which was the best one we've ever done. I think this topic of brain health is so top of mind, no pun intended, uh, right now because so many people are suffering with mental health. And in this book, you explore so many concepts about clearing the mind, enhancing your brain, enhancing human connection. This book came for you and your son together. Were you guys having coffee? Like, where did this book even come from? Was it something where you were just sitting around the living room? How did you two come to formulate this? We were in the very room where I'm sitting right now, actually. There happens to be a couch in here. I was on the couch. Austin was in this position. And we were talking about what is the biggest challenge that we face as doctors. And we we realized that it's about patients not carrying out the lifestyle choices that we think are really important. We realize there are three elements in that. The first is for us as healthcare providers to do our very best to learn as much as we possibly can. Read the journals, go to the conferences, talk to our colleagues. Number two, take that information and give it to people as best we can, package it, deliver it, either face-to-face with people, write books, write articles, you name it. But it was step three where the breakdown Uh, we identified the breakdown was occurring, and that was the implementation on the part of the patient doing the things that we thought, you know, we all think are are the right things, exercise, getting enough sleep, eating the right foods. We realized that that's where the breakdown occurs, and that between 50 and 80% of the information that healthcare providers provide to patients doesn't get translated into action. And, you know, as a healthcare provider, it's, it's frustrating that the patient comes back time and time again, blood sugar keeps going up, weight goes up, you name it, whatever parameter you're, you're following. And you ask the patient, well, are you doing what we talked about? Well, not really. You know, I just really couldn't get my arms around going on a lower carb diet or getting out for 15 minutes and exercise, whatever it may be. And I think that the next thing we identified, which I think was really groundbreaking, was that we had accused patients. We pointed fingers at patients, and they in turn would would accuse themselves and blame themselves for not having enough, uh, whatever, willpower, if you will, to actually do the things that even they knew were good for themselves. And it was about the blame, that we would point fingers, they would point fingers at themselves, and we realized that the ability to make the good decisions, uh, the ability, that apparatus, that the wiring of the brain has been sabotaged. So our brains tend to get locked into acting impulsively using an area of the brain called the amygdala. And there is so much about our modern world that is locking us into making poor decisions, short-sighted decisions, based on impulsivity, 
I want the jelly donut right <laughs> now. I want yeah. to stay up and binge watch uh, whatever it is, uh, whatever program yeah. uh, is on uh, Tiger King, you name it. Uh, whatever it is that we know isn't necessarily in our best interest, but we do it because we don't have the ability many times to access the other part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, that allows us to basically let the adult come back into the room and help us with our decision making that would say, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, you need to eat less refined carbohydrates. And guess what? Maybe getting out for a 15 minute walk would be a good thing for us to do. <laughs> Instead of the so, 12th episode of Tiger King. Yes. I, yeah, I, I think and, a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people don't even realize that these structures exist in the brain. And this is what I found so deeply fascinating about your book. Absolutely. It's is a balance. The awareness. Between, uh, impulsivity and fear based uh, activity, self-centered activity, narcissism and uh, us versus them versus on the other hand, the prefrontal cortex, which is making decisions, thinking about the future uh, consequences, uh, empathy, compassion. And, you know, that really embodies the notion of thinking beyond yourself. We can then, as we talk about in Brainwash, actively take steps to change our wiring, to regain access to a better decision maker, and then be able to make the better decisions when we get information from our healthcare providers, from our financial advisors, from any place that requires us then moving forward to make a decision that has a bearing on our future. Yeah, I think the decision-making process right now is hindered for a lot of people because people are in a fear response. You know, they're being flooded. There's a hormone cascade of fear. And this brain, it doesn't like to be in pain, right? So the novelty aspect, we crave novelty as human beings. Right now, people are in their homes, you know, there's the, the country's on lockdown. And so we look at novelty, you know, where maybe it's consuming media. A lot of the concepts you cover in the book are around this disconnection where it seems on the outside, Dr. Perlmutter, that we're connected. You know, we have all these followers on Facebook. You were just telling me before we came on, you have a couple hundred thousand people that are watching your Facebook live. Yet my question to you is in this world of perceived connection, do you really have a sense that we are connected? Josh, I will say that um, it's very, very important right now to just think about what that term is all about and how valuable it is. Being uh, socially distant uh, from somebody, being socially, um, uh, you know, immunologically socially separated from other people doesn't mean that we have to be socially isolated. In fact, now is we as as human beings tend to gravitate to a situation where we're more interrelated during times of stress. And unfortunately, that is not necessarily as easily available to us during this time of social isolation yeah. imparted by the social distancing idea. But they are very disparate terms. You can socially distance, but you don't have to be socially isolated. You can pick up the phone and call a family member. You can FaceTime. Uh, you can have people visit you in the front yard staying you know, in their lawn chairs, eight feet away. Uh, you could see people on the street and chat with them. Uh, this is the time that we need to reconnect. And what we talk about in Brainwash is something called disconnection syndrome. And that means that the more we lock into this part of the brain, uh, the amygdala, the more isolated and lonely we become. And that has dire health consequences. There is 
direct relationship between sense of loneliness and dramatic increased risk for all manner of chronic disease, including diabetes, heart disease, and cancer, and even cognitive decline. So, you know, man is a social animal. We, we thrive uh, based upon our ability to socially interact. One of the things that you that you talk about in the book is the amygdala, and I, we've covered it on the show with with different experts. But you know, I, I consider you to be the neurologist expert globally. I think if you look at the types of people we've had on Wellness Force with your background and also with your story, you know, losing your father to Alzheimer's and and the deep emotional and spiritual connection you have to your work. What is it about this book right now that you think is really truly serving, especially considering where we are as a society? Well, I, I would say that uh, everything we talk about in the book, incredibly, uh, while it is focusing on reconnecting to the prefrontal cortex and away from the amygdala, is also directly related to enhancing immune function. Who knew? Whether it's a better night's sleep, eating a better diet, lower sugar, lower refined carbohydrates, re-exposure to nature, keeping a gratitude journal, uh, meditating, all of these things directly relate back to enhancing immune function. We therefore need to do everything we possibly can to shore up our defenses, to make sure that our immune system is robust, and to make sure that our inflammation response is tempered if we should get this uh, infection, because that's where uh, this really uh, gets out of hand and ultimately proves fatal. So, uh, everything we talk about in the book is immune enhancing, which is so desperately needed today because it is quite clear that those individuals who are suffering from underlying inflammatory disorders like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, etc., have a profoundly greater risk of a bad outcome. In fact, uh, those individuals who are in the uh, intensive care unit some 72% of these people have an underlying condition. Yeah. And I think it's been very instructive for those of us who are following the epidemiology of COVID-19 to respond to this in, you know, unusual observation, challenge, if you will, that young people were not involved with COVID-19 until America got the virus. Suddenly, when uh, this virus spread to the United States, we began seeing uh, younger people ending up in the hospital, younger people dying, younger people in the intensive care units. And people puzzled over that saying, gee, these are young and healthy people. What, what's going on? Therein lies the answer. While they may be young, we know that our young people are not necessarily healthy. Being young doesn't mean healthy. Yeah. So the idea of young and healthy is a, a, a bit of a contradiction in terms, at least in America. Our young people have extremely high rates of obesity and overweight and extremely high rates of type two diabetes as it, uh, as it relates to COVID, that's very important. Why? Because one of the most powerful predictors of a bad outcome is elevated blood sugar. So uh, when we looked over the past couple of decades at the increase in average weight of our younger people, you know, diabetes in teenagers, we used to call it adult onset diabetes. We can't get away with that language anymore because we're seeing it in, in adolescence for crying yes. out loud. Yes. So that paves the way for these bad outcomes. 
And it's not a mystery. These are inflammatory disorders that are related to lifestyle choices. And now we're back to making good decisions. When the storm comes, how much have we taken care of the house? You know, what's our foundation? What's our health foundation? And you talk about in the book us being literally accosted by Facebook and Instagram and social media. These things are flooding our body with chemicals that we've normally never been able to access from just a smartphone in our hand. Yet we're so wired for love. You know, we're wired for connection. We're wired for this. How are these companies taking advantage of this part of our brain? Because I think this is really important for people to That's understand. That's a great question. And uh, this is a powerful hack. We are, uh, as mentioned, social beings. You know, we've we've thrived in an environment <clears throat> of division of labor, of having each other's backs, of uh, having people specialize in certain things for the tribe, uh, certain activities. So this has been very beneficial for us to have this deep interrelationship with uh, our brethren uh, in order to to thrive and um, and to confront adversity. Uh, that's been a powerful hack for this thing called social media, which has pretty much turned out to be anything but social. Mm. It is extremely, as we see it play out today, antisocial because it breeds isolation. Uh, those individuals who you know spend a lot of time on social media, uh, really end up visiting, staying only in those areas that cater to their frame of reference, their points of view, and it continues to fan the flames of them being right and others being wrong and really works very much against our uh, being able to engage in what's called cognitive empathy. What is cognitive yeah. empathy? It's the ability of one person to experience the viewpoint of another person, to try it on to feel what it's like to uh, be, look at the world through a Republican perspective if you're a Democrat or vice versa. How dare you? Or see things, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe uh, the world is flat. I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, it's been said, uh, don't judge another person until you walk a mile in their shoes. You know why people say that? They well, say it's, that it's, because then when you do judge that person, uh, you're already a mile away and you have their shoes. So, okay. I was going to answer something differently. <laughs> I was thinking about like the fact that like, you don't know what it's like because sometimes people's shoes are uncomfortable. People are in pain. And I think a lot of times with this echo chamber effect on social media, the people that are in pain just get to constantly be in that pain body. You know, Eckhart Tolle calls it the pain body. So people are saturating themselves in complaint and, and they're, they're in this right, this con continuous cycle of being right. And that is actually what I believe social media plays to. Do you find that in your research as well is it's nice to feel right and social media tends to make people feel right over and over and over again. Absolutely. It really just locks people into a, a single frame of reference. We've lost uh, the Agora, the uh, marketplace where ideas would be traded and shared and explored and vetted. Uh, and ultimately that leads to better outcome because I don't have all the answers and you don't have all the answers, but if we come together, we'll create something different and unique. Uh, and that's what sharing ideas is all about. 
This podcast is brought to you by Ion Biome, creators of Ion Gut Health, a gut-strengthening, brain-boosting mineral supplement sourced from 60 million-year-old soil that naturally supports microbiome balance. This is something that's not actually even a probiotic or a prebiotic. You know, in all my research, I found that probiotics and prebiotics can sometimes be inadequate when it comes to really proper gut health. They simply don't do enough to affect the microbiome in the gut. Now, we learned from Zach Bush on the podcast and in our research for this product and this partnership, the active ingredient in the Ion Biome products is called terahydrite. It's a family of molecules made by bacteria, the same friendly bacteria that's found in our gut. Now, these molecules are derived from carbon frozen in 60 million year old, uncompromised, untarnished soil, the purest of the pure, completely free of modern chemicals. Why is this important? Terahydrite is the missing piece in today's modern health puzzle. This is a way you can connect your head and your heart back home to your gut. Save 15% off your two-month supply of Ion Gut Health. Just head over to wellnessforce.com forward slash biome. That's wellnessforce.com forward slash biome. Enter code Josh1KS. That's J-O-S-H, the number one, followed by a K and S, Josh1KS at the checkout cart to save 15% off and start feeling good from the inside out again. The polarization in our modern world doesn't permit that to happen. And it is fostered by our online experiences because you can lose yourself in in, uh, social media sites of similar mentality, similar perspectives, and to the exclusion of being able to be okay or at least explore other ideas. That's what has all, how our socialization has always been and it's always led to our advancement. So, um, you know, we really call for this idea of uh, rekindling cognitive empathy, and that is a function of the prefrontal cortex. The more we lock into the amygdala by being on uh, social media that only looks at one perspective, the more we don't get a good night's sleep, the more we eat inflammatory foods, the less we exercise, the less we engage nature, the less we meditate, We continue to lock into the amygdala to the exclusion of this prefrontal cortex so that all of our decision-making is nothing but serving ourselves right now, the rest of the world be damned. Mm. What the prefrontal cortex is all about is really bringing the adult back into the room to say, stop, calm down, let's think it through, let's make good decisions that are going to be beneficial for you And by the way, may well be beneficial or at least consider how our decisions impact our neighbors, our communities, and even the planet on which we live. I feel like you're a Trojan horse. I I totally get it now. This book is about waking people up to have higher consciousness. Yes, you're doing it through a medical lens. You're doing it through an academic and research lens. But the way that people are using this tool to wake up is having the parent be in charge. Many of us have capital T trauma, lower T trauma. If you look at the work of Bessel van der Kolk, the body keeps the score. The body always holds trauma. And that trauma can actually fuel the child to be more in control than the adult. What do people with trauma, either big trauma or little trauma, can, what can they garner from this book in the way they can help manage that? Well, individuals with trauma are very closely in touch at an unconscious level, but it influences conscious decisions, very closely in touch at an unconscious level with those traumatic imprints or engrams in their brains. So those events are constantly influencing the decisions and the response of an individual day in and day out. 
what we understand through the beautiful science of neuroplasticity is that the more we do other things, the more that we can engage other parts of the brain, the stronger will those pathways become. The less we engage those traumatic pathways, they will wither on the vine. That is the beauty of neuroplasticity. So when we take action to actively engage the prefrontal cortex, the things that I've talked about so far, and utilize this neuroplasticity, it will help us distance ourselves from uh, those traumatic engrams. And another thing that happens very interestingly is that with time, we can slowly become actually aware of those engrams. They will float to consciousness. Can you share with us what the engram is? What's an engram? What is an engram? An engram is a a collection uh, of influences that become uh, stored in a certain area. It's basically a tape that we cue up. Okay. And uh, let me give you an example. Uh, It's a great example. If you scratch a dog's belly, what does it do? It shakes its leg. The leg starts going because the dog has this connection between scratching and that leg movement. Watch somebody walk down the street on their cell phone and watch what they do. They're not just talking on the cell phone, but they're doing this. Now, the person on the cell phone doesn't see them going, but there were three people that came and, oh, my God, all of a sudden, whatever. But because we're used to, through activating these engrams that are part of language with gesticulations, we're used to having those things, uh, those engrams, hand activity, uh, to be activated during conversation. So that's how we activate. And those engrams can influence our mood and even influence our decision-making. Well, I, I think about this pathway where there's the signals coming from our tissues back and forth to our brain. For people that have had physical trauma, you know, how do they, do they have a rougher time with neuroplasticity because it's so baked in from the severe trauma? They have a rougher time, uh, not with neuroplasticity in general, uh, but they do have a rougher time in terms of um, undoing these influences. But uh, as many have reported, they can be undone. Now, that said, what works directly against neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, the growth of new brain cells, is inflammation. So we have a, uh, a, a teeter-totter then between neuroplasticity and inflammation. So whatever we do that increases inflammation will tend to uh, make it more difficult for us to engage neuroplasticity and, and vice versa. So we really wanna do our best in order to allow our brains to rewire, to do everything we can to offset inflammation. What enhances inflammation we need to be aware of well, we know that there are plenty of foods that are pro-inflammatory, hyper-processed, ultra-processed, simple carbs, uh, bad fats, omega-6s, et cetera, uh, bad diet as it relates to our gut bacteria, plenty of influences uh, in food and certainly medications, antibiotics, acid-blocking drugs, non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs. The list contains more than a thousand. But other lifestyle things tend to fan the flames interestingly, flame inflammation uh, of inflammation, and that would be certainly not getting a good night's sleep. Even one night of non-restorative, not getting enough restorative sleep is associated with a dramatic uptick in inflammation markers in our bodies and 
as much as a 60% increased activity in the amygdala. So uh, you know, maybe it sounds like I've been talking about sleep quite a bit. You know what? Good reason. Uh, it's so underrated and it's such a powerful on-ramp. Uh, in Brainwash, we talk about it as perhaps being the most important on-ramp these days towards reducing inflammation, reducing cortisol, regaining connection to the prefrontal cortex, and really rebalancing the immune system. Underrated. Oh, we need think, to get more I sleep. think that people forget. It's funny, you know, you're, the, the book is Brainwash. When we're sleeping, there's a chemical release that washes our brain. And I think people forget that. Uh, do you remember the name of the chemical that's released? Um, I forget the name of it. Dr. Parsley talked about it. Yes. Yeah, so uh, actually there are several involved, but what you're bringing up is something called the glymphatic system. Yes. And uh, this is a uh, recently discovered uh, by researchers at, I think, University of Pittsburgh in collaboration uh, with others. And that is uh, that during deep sleep, uh, which occurs later in the evening, uh, we activate a system that really basically shampoos the brain, if you will, that helps the brain rid itself of toxic accumulations that occur during uh, waking hours during brain activity, and also uh, things like misfolded proteins. And that turns out to be very uh, uh, thematic as it relates to neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. As uh, Dr. Uh, Walker in his book, Why We Sleep, talks about, um, even one night of, non of not getting enough restorative sleep, when you look at the spinal fluid of volunteers the next day, shows higher levels of this amyloid protein uh, that has been associated with Alzheimer's disease. So yeah, I mean, that's when our brains clear out the debris. So we, you know, who valued sleep, right? Nobody, we, we, we consider it downtime. Yeah. If you want to be productive, you need to stay up late work on your project, get up early. Yes. Because sleep is wasted time. Yeah, you're changing off. the narrative. You're changing the narrative. It's not about work hard, play hard. It's about resting hard too. And I remember I was talking with Rob Wolf on the show and he was telling me he guards his sleep at, uh, his sleep at knife point. He's like, nobody gets in the way of my sleep. And I feel like right now that needs to be something that we're all aware of, like really guarding one's sleep. Um, what do you recommend for people to guard their sleep? Like what are the tools? What are the ways of being to well, guard our sleep? I think the first sleep? thing you do before you even implement the tools is you recognize how darn important it is. Yeah. Look, uh, you don't spend eight hours a day exercising or eight hours a day eating and yet exercise and diet are really all that you, people talk about on the internet, for example, eat this diet, lose weight, uh, exercise like this, get some great abs. Uh, but you, you should spend seven to eight hours, in other words, close to a third of your life doing this thing that all animals do, and that is sleep. That's how valuable it is. Our ancestors, when the sun would go down, they would go to sleep, and the sun would come up, they would wake up. So that's, that's hard-baked into our genome. And uh, you know, so then where do we get to the dynamics of that and more importantly, the hygiene part of that? And that is first recognize how important it is. And now we look at, so why am I not getting a good night's sleep? Well, it could be having caffeine after 2 p.m. It could be spending time on your computer, exposing your eyeballs to blue light, which then goes through an area called the suprachiasmatic nucleus uh, that then degrades your ability to make melatonin in your pineal gland, guess what? You're not going to sleep as well. It might be you didn't get enough exercise. You're not really as tired. 
So there are a lot of things to look at that are simple modifications that may well help anybody get a better night's sleep. And I will tell you, there's probably nothing better for decision making than a good night's sleep. You know, we're now uh, are creating a program for uh, medical doctors uh, for helping their patients in deal in their decision making. So we're, we've taken the brainwash book and we're using the guts of that the program with doctor training to help them be better healthcare providers towards their patients. Because, you know, again, it's, it's not that doctors don't know a lot of stuff. They do. And it's not that they don't try to give that information to their patients. They do. But it's step three where the breakdown occurs. That is the implementation of that information on the part of the patient. They don't carry it out. 50 to 80% of the information we give to our patients doesn't get acted upon. That's where the breakdown occurs. So it is as a scenario, you're a healthcare provider and you're dealing first time with a patient who has, uh, is overweight and diabetic patients in your office. And you say this week, I'm not going to give you a diet. I'm not going to even talk to you about exercise. What we're going to work on this week, I'll see you next week, is sleep. And, you know, the eyebrows go up. Wait a minute. I'm here to lose weight. I want to get my blood sugar under control. Stop. What we're going to really work on, our goal is to get you to a place of better decision making. We're going to rebuild the decision making apparatus so that when we do get to the exercise, we do get to the diet, you will then have the brain hardware to make those things work for you. Because truthfully, you, Mr. or Mrs. Patient, have been to countless doctors, you've read countless books, you've been online, you got all the information, but how did it help you? It didn't because you didn't decide to do it. I'm not pointing a finger at you, what we're gonna do moving forward is give you the tools, rewire your brain so you can be more in a position to make better decisions. And guess what? We're gonna start with sleep. There's some trusted tools in the book, but we're at this nexus too, where we've been running this society at such a fervent pace. I mean, the gas pedal has been mashed to the floor. No wonder people aren't sleeping. Like there is many concepts that get to be unraveled and unpacked when we look at why people aren't actually sleeping in the first place. Yes, I agree with you, Dr. Perlmutter. People need to get to sleep and they can take the information that's actionable in the book and they can actually do it. But there's this choice point between knowing and doing and knowing is not any real value at all if you're not going to do anything with it. So what do you see the factors in our society that get to be changed so that people can have less decision fatigue and follow through on trusted information? Great question. And I would say that, you know, we published this book in January of 2020. And what else happened in January of 2020? Sure. Uh, You know, that's history at this point. We published a book that made it clear that the deck is stacked against us for reasons that you just described, that our world is making incredible demands upon us and that we are bombarded day and night by information that really it doesn't have our self-interest in mind. It's really about profitability and harvesting our attention uh, for profitability, the pop-ups, the clickbait, you name it. Yes. Uh, you know, when we understand that the metrics we used, the data we used, indicated that prior to uh, this current situation with COVID-19, 
that Americans were spending north of six hours a day in front of one screen or another. So plenty of opportunity for your attention to be hijacked. And it's been said that, you know, when you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. So not preparing your meals, not outside, not exercising, not uh, meditating, not interacting with other people. Now it's time to double down on everything we've talked about because now those influences are far more aggressive. People are glued to screens these days. We know that to be true. And by and large, it's all uh, very much involved in dramatically captivating us with one single word, and that is fear. Yeah. Uh, is this a, a dreadful situation? Yes. Is it a fearful situation? You bet. But it's not a situation that requires 18 hours of our attention each day. Is it good to know what's going on? Of course it is. Yes, you can take we 10 get minutes. We information about hand washing and social <laughs> right. distancing and uh, where we stand on the development of immunizations, et cetera. Of course. But that doesn't require 18 hours of attention each day. This is the time to realize that if you're going to be fanning the flames of fear, you are fanning the flames of two other things, inflammation and downregulation of your immune system. And you can't afford either of those. Those are the most uh, important things that we have going for us right now if we want to survive this infection. The paradox we live in, don't we just live in this ultimate paradox of there's so much, we're so connected, we're in an ocean of articles and podcasts and everything else. There is a North Star that's unique to everyone. I'm, I'm, I love yours. I love the way you explained it. Like, is this information that I'm about to take in, is it going to allow me to help people? Is it going to allow me to have the adult in the room? And I like that metaphor a lot because we've had, and I've done personally, I'll just share with you, I've done a lot of work on healing my inner child. And I talk about it on the show, all of us get to do this inner work. How does the inner work, how does the emotional intelligence quotient of healing our inner child relate to some of the strategies and takeaways in your book? Well, it's actually um, an interesting question because we have many, many people do have right now by virtue of what's going on, the time uh, to address exactly what you're talking about. Yes, we do. And, you know, when it's all said and done, I think you sh you could ask yourself, well, what did I accomplish? How did I use that time? You know, we're all saying, gee, if I only had more time, I would do whatever, X. Well, you do have the time right now. And, yeah. and you, you hear about people going uh, uh, stir crazy because they, you know, they, they have too much time on their hands and they're having to stay home. This is a really good time to do the work that you are absolutely describing. And that is to involve yourself uh, in the process of undoing the, first recognizing and then undoing uh, the effects of those traumas. We learn about those traumas. They come to the surface more and more when we uh, get involved in things like meditation. Uh, when we do the things that we talk about uh, in our book about you know, creating the fertile environment to letting those things finally become evident and then confronting them in a loving way, recognizing that those individuals that transgressed uh, us, that we felt transgressed us years ago or perhaps more recently, that, you know, they were at the mercy of their own engrams, their own 
early life influences. Yes. And that each of us is a, you know, basically a manifestation of what came before. We know that's true with our genetics. We know that's true with our epigenetics, which is a very empowering realization. Not only do we inherit the genes of our forebears, but we inherit the influences of their trauma on their gene expression that gets transferred to us and is transferred to our progeny, our children coming from our parents. So we inherit the gene expression from our grandparents in terms of how that gene expression has been modified by their traumatic experiences. Good news is that we can work on that and we can first see it. Once you see it, it's Uh, very much like uh, Plato's allegory of the cave. We're no longer facing backwards in the cave, only seeing our shadows. We've now turned around and are actually seeing the light. And once you see the light, you're seeing the truth and you can deal with it, you can work with it. It's not uh, simply a you know, a manifestation of something that that happened earlier. Your son, Austin, uh, specialized in studying depression and, and chronic disease. And, and some of the things in the book that I read were around how to deal with burnout, you know, how to actually deal with that. Looking at your relationship with him and maybe even looking back, like you said, to your grandfather, is there something that you've healed or that Austin has healed in the Perlmutter lineage? I think that uh, the answer is yes. I mean, um, I can't imagine, well, I guess it's possible, but I didn't have this relationship with my father. Uh, and I, I, many people, you know, can say that they wish it would have been different. And I, I, I you know, but my dad did his own thing. He, uh, he was uh, married to my mother, but his mistress was brain surgery. And he was uh, an incredibly gifted and accomplished neurosurgeon as such, the rest of the family didn't get to really uh, share in his life as perhaps would we would have wanted. Uh, when I embraced that and really embraced how powerful an influence that was on my life, it made it, uh, I was able to let it go. And the engram of wanting to impress and wanting to be with him tended to fade and I began to be able to go on my own and, and just develop my life uh, in the absence of that influence. Um, I think I carried that into my own fatherhood uh, with respect to uh, dealing with my children uh, in a positive way, that uh, I wanted to be available, I wanted to share, I wanted to be transparent about uh, areas that I was having difficulty with and my failings, as well as things that I have learned that I could pass on. So um, I am so thrilled uh, by the relationship that I have with my children. And uh, I I suspect that uh, when they have children, if they have children, uh, that that will even be a a better circumstance because of what they've learned about relationship with both me and my wife. This is what I felt from you two and a half years ago. There's such a a heart-based spiritual element behind your academic pursuits. 
in, in your media pursuits. So, and this is why I was excited to talk with you because when I look at some of the things that you mentioned in the book around deeper relationships and creating long-term happiness, because you know, Dr. Perlmutter, happiness is fleeting. We can't have an expectation that every day we're going to be perfectly happy. It's just nonsense. That's the child in the room, as you had mentioned. So as the adult in the room, what are a few of the tools? What are a few of the ways of being that we can do and be um, that'll actually promote this long-lasting happiness for us in our relationships with ourselves, with our spouses. Let me first say that um, <clears throat> let's look at the delineation between happiness and being content. Because oftentimes we think those are synonymous and they are not. Uh, into each life, some rain must fall. And uh, right now there's a lot going on that is detracting uh, from people being able to feel happy all the time as if that were ever possible. Nonetheless, we can get away from feeling discontent. Um, content means you have enough. You don't need any more. And it gets back to the influences of, of our modern lives, uh, really trying to, to foster this notion that we don't have enough. We don't have enough things. We don't have enough stuff. We don't have enough good looks, thinness, money. Uh, we don't have enough abs, whatever it may be. And our experiences with digital media fans that flame of continuing to make us feel that we do not have enough. And here is the quick fix, whatever you can buy or do, that whatever is being sold. So in a very real sense, our modern lives are keeping us in a state of discontent. Discontent, needing more, is an amygdala-based kind of response to the world around us. Mm. When we can distance ourselves from that amygdala, which serves something very important, we'll get to that in a minute, and lock more into the prefrontal cortex, uh, we suddenly let it go. We suddenly look around and realize that the glass is not half full, the glass is overflowing. And I understand. And that, oh my God, there's a glass. We're here. Yeah, I, you know, I understand <laughs> so, that plenty of people right now are very, very challenged by what is going on. Yeah. And I am not trying to uh, discount that because it's huge. There are plenty of people having a rough go. But I think universally, people are beginning to appreciate some of the things around them uh, that they were not able to appreciate before and recognize that you know, there are things around us that have great value that we took for granted. Now we realize how important they were and they are. In other words, we're beginning to regain a sense of contentment with what we have, as opposed to living our lives constantly being bombarded mm. by messaging indicating we just don't have enough, we need more. So that really is a very important goal apart from this notion of happiness. Sadness is a part of the human experience and can be embraced and experienced uh, with as much participation as happiness. Why not? Um, you know, when, when something happens, uh, you can step out of it and, and ask yourself, what does this feel like to be sad over an event? And, and participate in that feeling. Be all in with the sadness as you want to be all in. 
uh, with the happiness. It's part of, uh, of the human experience. It's part of our lives. Right now we're in this space where so many people are just wishing they could connect. And it makes me wonder, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. It's something we've heard for probably hundreds of years. And in the absence of connection, what we're all craving is more connection. So when it does come around and we are connected again and we're able to meet and hang out with one another and and hug and, and have some food, it's going to be so much sweeter. And my hope, my intelligent hope, is that when we do come back together, that is going to be such a point of reference for us to remember how special it is to be with one another. And And you had talked about this in the book, The Power of Social Connection, Right now, as we look at the road ahead and we see all the different things that are coming at us, it's quite frank that there's a lot of uncertainty. You've mentioned the amygdala quite a bit. How do we transcend that amygdala as parting guidance? You know, what do we do to, you've under, we've understood it through your guidance, but how do we transcend it? How do we help to transcend the control of the amygdala? Well, let me just get, uh, I'll answer that question in just a moment, but you brought up something I think was really very valuable. And I just want to make sure that that everyone understands there's uh, that there's a big difference between social distancing and the concept of social isolation. And while we may distance ourselves in terms of proximity to another person uh, for immunological reasons, we don't need to distance ourselves from people uh, in the outright. We still very much need to be connected now more than ever. Humans have always faced adversity uh, by reconnecting and enhancing their their connections socially. Now, is it digital? Uh, We talked about this before. Uh, Is it verbal? Is it in in close proximity, but not violating the six or 10 foot rule, whatever it may be? Uh, And we're seeing that happen. We're seeing a, a lot of evidence of that, that people are are gaining connection now in ways that were, unpre- were not predicted, that's for sure. So I think that's really very valuable. And I think that, is there a neuroanatomical substrate for this? Yes, there is. The social interaction part of the brain is this prefrontal cortex. It's what allows us uh, and, and um, encourages us to connect to other people. So the more we can do to engage this prefrontal cortex, the, the better it will be for our ability to interact with us and the better that will be for our ability to make progress moving forward. It's never failed yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a challenge because of the, uh, the social distancing requirements, but it is not insurmountable. So anything we can do to engage the prefrontal cortex more will help us engage in our uh, ability to connect and offset what we talk about in brainwash and that is disconnection syndrome. So how do we reconnect to the prefrontal cortex? We get a good night's sleep. Who knew? Uh, We meditate. You know, when you look at functional MRIs of people who meditate, the prefrontal cortex is absolutely lit up and the amygdala is quiescent. Uh, We engage nature. Nature engages the prefrontal cortex and calms down the amygdala. It means get outside, means take a walk in the park, or if not, it means buying a potted plant and putting it in your kitchen or even a nice photograph of a natural environment yes. is enough to bring about better connection to the prefrontal cortex, improved immune function, and decreased uh, inflammation. Who wouldn't want that? So we have a 10-day uh, program in the, uh, the end of the book talking about how to change your diet, keep a uh, gratitude uh, journal, 
better sleep, more exercising, getting outside, social reconnection, et cetera. But you know what? For each individual, as I mentioned earlier, there may be a different on-ramp that then facilitates all of the rest of the better decisions. Mm, powerful. The book is Brainwash. Dr. Perlmutter is on the show the second time talking about not just the health of the brain, but the health of our hearts. And there's such a deep connection between the mirror neurons in the heart and what goes on in the gut and everything being so connected. How has this definition changed? I asked you this two and a half years ago, uh, how you see wellness, what's your definition of wellness? But today with everything you've learned and even what you've mentioned about um, healing past trauma and all your academic pursuits that have brought you to being a leader in our world, you know, being a leader about brain health. How do you see wellness now? How, what's your definition of wellness to live life well? I'm not sure what my uh, definition was two and a half years ago. So um, if it changed, then so be it. Uh, I, I think that wellness is the manifestation of being, of, of utilizing uh, what defines us as uh, being a human being uh, to the fullest. And we really have two very important attributes. Yes, we have the opposable thumb. I'm not going to argue that's a cool thing to have. But we also have this the size of our prefrontal cortex is unlike, you know, it's a third of the, the brain's cortex is a prefrontal cortex. That uh, utilization allows us to make plans for the future and allows us to become more empathetic towards our future selves, and importantly, more empathetic in the lives of others and in the life of our planet itself. Wise words from a wise man. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Dr. Promoter, for what you do in the world. And we're talking about Dr. Promoter's work and Brainwash more. We're giving away two copies of the book. So go to wellnessforce.com forward slash group. You can enter to win. And Brainwash is the book. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. You too. Hey, thanks for listening to the show, my friend. Everything you learned on this podcast starts with your morning practices. So from over 300 world-class guests, we pulled together six private people, yet powerful morning practices down into a 21-minute system guaranteed to increase your vibration and the way that you feel every day. Get this free powerful guide over at wellnessforce.com forward slash M21. And if you love this show, share it with somebody. Share it with somebody that you love or that you care about. You can support the show easily by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Just go to wellnessforce.com forward slash review. Or if you're on your phone, just tap it, hit the link in purple that says review this podcast. And the journey does not stop here. We're continuing this discovering process in our Facebook group over at wellnessforce.com forward slash group. You can be a part of it. You already are. All you have to do is join us at wellnessforce.com forward slash group and I will welcome you at the door. Now go out into your life and live your life well. And until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.